Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This episode comes at the end of one of the most tumultuous presidencies in U.S. history. And this episode is coming out on January 20th, the day Donald Trump will leave the White House and Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States. This episode also comes at the beginning of a new season here on Deep Background. This year on the show, we'll be exploring the theme of power. Who has it? How do they get it? Who doesn't have it and why? How is power used? What is power in different realms? And how does power shape current events? Over the course of the year, we'll be discussing many forms of power, well beyond the strictly legal or political or constitutional. To start off this new season, given the January 6th attack on Congress and Trump's second impeachment, we're going to talk today about how power functions in the presidency. To discuss this, I'm joined by Professor Douglas Brinkley. He's a professor at Rice University, the official U.S. presidential historian of the New York Historical Society, a contributor to CNN, and a best-selling author whose most recent book is American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. Doug, thank you so much for being here today. Let's begin with the Capitol storming on January 6th. There's no immediate precedent for an event like this. My mind immediately went to the moment in the War of 1812 when the Capitol was actually burned. But that was by a battle-hardened force of British regulars who swept away the state militias who briefly tried to block them at Bladensburg. So it's a pretty different scenario. What did it call to your mind when you try to think about this bizarre event, an upsetting event in historical context? 
Well, no, I immediately did what you did. I pulled back and thought, gosh, what's going on here? And I did think for a minute about the War of 1812. And I did recall when Washington was uh, attacked during 9-11 and our Pentagon was hit and the Capitol had been a target. And I remember scares of anthrax and the like with some people running out of building. But they were kind of frivolous comparisons. I mean, here the fact of the matter was a group of our fellow citizens, a mob, were going in and destroying the U.S. Capitol on a hunt for the Speaker of the House and the Vice President with ostensibly the order to hang them or do something horrible to them. That was unprecedented, and that to me is a day that will live in infamy. January 6th is not to be forgotten likely. Just like we have a 9-11 museum in New York City, there will be a museum by the Capitol to talk about what happened in that day when the insurrection occurred. And so I found it to be an extremely frightening day for our democracy. That's a fascinating idea of a museum or an exhibit even in a museum to commemorate those events. And it leads me to a question that I've been really puzzling over, and I I don't feel I have a good answer to it. And that is, will we achieve the kind of consensus on the meaning of those events over time that is usually the precondition for some kind of a public recognition in the form of a museum or a monument? Because there is an impulse now to say, well, look, Donald Trump was the president. He spoke to this crowd before they stormed the Capitol. He's been impeached under an article of impeachment that accused him of inciting insurrection. Those are two major words, incitement and insurrection. They're both invoked there. And all of that is, of course, partisan in some powerful way. For us to get to a place where we say, you know, let's memorialize this, it probably would be necessary to think of this as an outlying event that wasn't closely associated with one of the two major political parties. Oh, excellent point. And that's actually why I mentioned it. I think that day will come. You know, I think the country will unite that this was a really rotten thing that occurred, the insurrection. But I don't think it's a date that's easily forgotten. Just like in April 25th, when the Oklahoma City was bombed. Uh, Well, in Oklahoma City, they have a beautiful museum there. They have the empty chairs of all the dead. And they explain that event of Timothy McVeigh and right-wing extremism quite well. It's a marvelously curated museum. That's in Oklahoma. This is in our nation's capital where all the school kids come, where everybody goes to visit to study democracy. So this is going to be, I think, studied like Ford's Theater, where Lincoln was killed as an anti-site, a site where something went terribly wrong with our democracy. Your comparison to the Oklahoma City bombing is really an important one. I was lucky enough to have on the program Professor Kathleen Bellew from University of Chicago at the History Department there, who works on the white supremacy movement. And she treats the McVeigh bombing in in Oklahoma City as a central event in the history of that movement. And she's been saying recently that she sees the Capitol attack as itself a manifestation of what is essentially the same movement. And I think to the extent that we do come to see it that way, you're gonna be proven right that we can peripheralize the events of that day. The question that I have is, what about the denial of the legitimacy of the 2020 election results that was closely associated with the attack? That goes way beyond 
the people who attacked the Capitol. Right now, these numbers will change, but right now, close to 70% of Republicans are telling pollsters that they believe that the 2020 election was illegitimate. And that, too, is going to have to be assimilated into the historical record in some way. In fact, that's a dispute about the very facts of the historical record, you know, who won the election. How do you anticipate that structure of, uh, I would call it a structure of denial, will work itself out over time? Well, it is a structure of denial, and that's the perfect way to put it, Noah. I worry about it. I have a feeling that there will be a lot of those people that will admit that the uh, January 6th insurrection was, you know, shouldn't have happened, that it was a handful of real zealots that were responsible and didn't represent the Trump movement or the 70 million plus people that voted for Trump. But when you have that high a number who thinks the uh, election of 2020 was rigged, uh, that really is a reprogramming or re-education process. I don't know where to begin on that. All I can tell you is that 2020 was a model of how a free and fair election should be run. We ran a great election in 2020. And why it disturbs me is I see that as one of our great exports. The American brand is all about we know how to do free and fair elections. It's why Jimmy Carter's ex-president could go to Nicaragua or go to Panama and say, I'm a former American president and I'll be judged whether you did a free or fair one here. We've made that our signature service for democracy in America. So the challenge that we don't know how to count votes is really a direct and central attack at the nervous system of what makes our democratic body politic work. And I hope more and more people will start, um, you know, dropping off of that stance and recognizing they were hoodwinked by talk radio, by um, internet post, by hate sites, or just by a refusal to accept that their team had, had lost, that maybe over time people will come to their senses. But there's always going to be a 20% of the American public that will always think that this was a fixed and rigged election. And that's that 20% that Donald Trump will carry around in his hip pocket, even as ex-president. Well, speaking of Trump and carrying that 20% around and its structure of denial, Trump's decision that he will not attend the inauguration, I think really underscores that he's trying to say, not just, I don't like Joe Biden, but I don't think Joe Biden is genuinely the president of the United States. I was trying to explain to my kids why I thought it was such a big deal for the president not to attend an inauguration. And I tried to explain it hadn't happened since Andrew Johnson and that it was a central symbol of, of transition. And they looked at me, you know, they're, uh, they're 14 and 15. They look at me blankly a lot as if, you know, dad, we don't know what you're talking about. And they, they just said to me, dad, why would you ever have expected Donald Trump under any circumstances to attend the inauguration of his successor? And that was a fair point that they made. How do you think about that decision? Is it something that will ultimately contribute to the delegitimation of the transition? You know, I have a 14, 15, and 16-year-old. I have three in high school right now, and they would all say the exact same thing to me. They're kind of on to the fact growing up, I think, in the age of Trump, that you're never going to have a sense of reconciliation. They grew up with the neo-Civil War, and they haven't experienced the healing moment that uh, we keep talking about. It's a tragedy, at least I first thought it was, that Trump wasn't coming to the Biden inauguration. 
because if he would have shook Biden's hand, it would have symbolically been he admitted as difficult as it was for him that Biden had won. But after January 6th, I say good riddance. I think Trump at the inaugural would have been a distraction. Um, I'm not very forgiving of Trump for January 6th when you have five people that are killed and that you run a reign of terror through our capital against our our representatives and uh, people having to either catch COVID, have terror, trauma, nightmare attacks, hiding in closets and corners. You know, so I've been asked a lot, as you can imagine, Noah, from the press to talk about why did John Adams not show up or John Quincy Adams or Andrew Johnson. Uh, Fact of the matter was, after the Civil War, when Andrew Johnson refused to go to Grant's inaugural, he spent the inaugural in the White House claiming he was doing paperwork, desk work. And, and so he was in Washington. He just refused to go. It stuck a, a bone in the throat of the nation. Um, we decided really collectively after that to make sure that the president's there for the transition. I found that moment of the transition sort of the crown jewel of our democratic process. It's the coronation. Uh, which legitimizes all of the mudslinging and debating and belittling and all the ugly side of American politics. You suddenly get the reward of the great hug, the great moment of friendship that emerges out of two adversaries. We see this in every sports game, right? A team loses and then the coaches go hug each other. Players talk to each other. We teach our young people to be good losers as well as winners, but Trump's refusal just sets him apart as a very small man, as somebody who's not well-liked, doesn't really have any personal friends, a loner in his own way. And, you know, probably not being on the inaugural stage was a good thing at the end because I would have been looking for the blood on his hands if he was standing there. I would have been feeling, how dare you have the gall to even be here today? I got that angry at Trump over January 6th. Doug, one of the themes that I'm going to try to explore in this new year is power and how it's created and how it weakens and how it grows. And I'm wondering whether you think when you wear your historian of the presidency hat, not just historian of particular presidents, but of the presidency as an institution, whether Trump is emerging from his presidency, having strengthened the presidency as an institution, partly through his ability to be a populist and gain not the whole communities, but a substantial part of the community's support for his conduct, or whether he's weakened the presidency by especially the way he's leaving it with the association with the attack of January 6th, with the sore loserism? Because I think a reasonable case could probably be made in either direction. And I, I really wonder how you how you think about it. And obviously we won't know for a long time, but it's an interesting question to ask in real time. It's a very interesting one. And I am, I am of two minds on it. You know, I've always been a promoter of strong executive power because I write books like on Theodore Roosevelt. So when TR said to himself, if Lincoln can use executive power to emancipate the slaves in the Civil War. I certainly can use the executive power in a vigorous way. And these incredible moments, like when Theodore Roosevelt stands on the lip of the Grand Canyon 
and says, do not touch it. God has made it. You will only mar it. Leave the Grand Canyon alone. And Senate wants to mine it for zinc, asbestos, and copper. And Roosevelt uses executive power to declare it as a national monument, which was really meant for sort of dinosaur bones or antiquities pottery, like a five-acre sites. He declares 600,000 acres, and today it's a, a million. So you cheer executive power. We wouldn't have the Grand Canyon without Theodore Roosevelt. And I can go through each president when they have moments of executive power that are usually quite admirable. I mean, Jimmy Carter using executive power to pardon Vietnam veterans, so-called draft dodgers, you know, to try to heal the country you know, as an executive power in a sense of a pardon. That probably was the correct thing to do. But I worry about uh, executive power overreach. Like, look how many executive, much executive power Barack Obama used once plummoxed after the Affordable Care Act. And then all we saw is Trump spent four years undoing the executive uh, achievements of Obama. Now Biden's coming in. The first thing he's doing is undoing Trump's executive decrees. So we're kind of going to go back and forth and eat up a lot of clock. And that way, I have learned to appreciate Lyndon Johnson a little more. Um, when Johnson had opportunities for executive power on a lot of things, he insisted to go through the Senate and Congress. But it's easy to say that I'm going to build a legislative record when you have an overwhelming percentage of the party with you. Um, Biden's operating on a 50-50 basis in the Senate, meaning it's just going to be really hard on any vote for him. But so I really am not one of those people that have tried to rein in presidential power up until Trump. And now I see the real dangers of somebody who ignores our, our civic mores, our uh, sense of decency, who treats the legislative branch as a, as a whipping post who abuses the judicial apartment. I think now may be the time that we have to figure out how to curtail presidential power. For example, how do we curtail this pardon power that has gone just crazy now, has nothing to do with justifying a judicial situation that had gone badly. It's now just pardoning cronies and would-be personal friends that turned cons or criminals and it's very unseemly to be doing that at the end. And so I think we might have to look at the 25th Amendment anew. When people call for the 25th Amendment to get rid of Trump, people say, well, it doesn't apply. Not really doable. Well, why? The, the reason I got when they said you can't use the 25th, it wasn't meant for that. It was done after John F. Kennedy's death. And if it was just somebody was incapacitated, well, in 1967, when we passed the 25th Amendment, mental illness wasn't treated seriously. Um, if you want to look at uh, books about what it was like to be treated for mental illness in Georgia and Alabama, it is horrific. Now, I think we all agree that Trump has a, uh, some sort of a, a narcissistic disorder, malignant self-love. We're all not supposed to say so because we're not psychiatrists. But I believe we had a very sick man operating in the White House for the past couple of years, and his behavior since the election warranted the 25th Amendment to be put into action. I would think 
somebody having losing their sense of mind and inability to think rationally would be a reason to evoke the 25th. I just want to push back gently on the 25th Amendment there. And here, I think I'm wearing my, my constitutionalist hat. You know, the language of the amendment is unable to discharge the duties of the office, right? It doesn't say anything about diagnosis of mental disease or defect, which I agree has evolved tremendously since then. But unable is, as constitutional language goes, pretty clear. And I don't think that Donald Trump was unable to discharge the duties of his office. He was unable to discharge them in a way that I found satisfactory or that was morally acceptable. So entirely apart from our attempt to make sense of his, uh, of his psychological state, which, as you say, is a challenging thing to do from the outside, but you know, reasonable judgments could certainly be made, I don't think the 25th Amendment says that if the president has you know, a narcissistic personality disorder, that that authorizes the removal of that president. And I actually think that's a good thing because presidents should be removed if they've committed high crimes and misdemeanors. In my view, this president did. And there were, in fact, two attempts to remove him, or one and a half if you count the last impeachment, which won't be tried if it is tried until after he's out of office. But that's a political process that's kind of overt. And the 25th Amendment, to the extent that the president resisted it, just sort of seems like a not-as-good version of impeachment, right? You would still need two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate in order to remove a president who insisted that he was capable of discharging the duties of the office. So to me, I mean, I, I think that impeachment isn't doing what it should do because of some lack of virtue on the part of the Senate, but I, I wouldn't use the 25th Amendment as a stopgap to replace it. So I wonder what that approach makes you think. I agree with what you said about the 25th. I just think we were caught in a two-week period here where if what if Trump started ordering federal troops to put down protesters or use a um, nuclear weapon on Iran? What was their way to curtail him? These would have been highly irrational acts caused by his inability to admit that he lost due to his narcissistic disorder, and we would have no recourse because you wouldn't be able to get two-thirds of the Senate, and you can't do it in time because there's only a couple weeks left and 25th doesn't allow for it. So what you're saying is you're just stuck that last week or two. And I'm thinking that we need to find a way never to be held hostage by an American president in the last days of office. And we may need to think more seriously of what is mental disorders, at least have a talk about what's new in science since 1967, you know, if you have somebody who is truly a sociopath in the White House and the idea you can't remove them with the 25th and your only recourse is impeachment, well, how do you do impeachment when you only have two weeks left when that sociopath starts acting out? What I'm most concerned is this limbo period we've been in right now where our country sort of held hostage to his mental whims and fancies. And that to me was dangerous. Yeah, that's an important comment on just the nature of the tremendous power of the presidency, especially in the nuclear era, where the president can just do tremendous damage. And what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is we don't really have a good mechanism constitutionally for how to fix that. And now we need to focus on that. And maybe we need to think about amending the 25th or adding something that would enable us to act under those circumstances. Exactly. That's all yeah. I'm suggesting. We might look into that. We'll be right back. 
As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. So let's turn now to this part in question. Nobody in the Guild of Presidential Historians has thought more about this than you, because you thought about Ford and you thought about Carter, so you've, and you also uh, edited extensively the Nixon tapes. So you've got a deep understanding of the run-up to Watergate, its aftermath, and then the reconciliation processes that did or didn't take place uh, in the years that followed. And I guess I'm wondering if you would reflect on your deep knowledge of that period to think about what should Joe Biden do with respect to the hard question that he faces, which is, on the one hand, there's an argument for reconciliation and moving on. And on the other hand, there's an argument for historical accountability. And obviously, the reconciliation prevailed in the middle 70s. But there are lots of voices saying that this time accountability should prevail. Well, you're right. And, you know, there's a consensus, as you know, that Gerald Ford did the right thing with Nixon. And that was not the consensus at the time. Ford paid dearly for the pardoning of Richard Nixon. And in fact, it may have cost him the election in 1976, or certainly contributed to his loss. But later, decades later, most people said Ford did the right thing. Ted Kennedy awarded Gerald Ford the Profiles and Courage Award with Kennedy, Senator Kennedy then saying, I was wrong, I was so angry at you, but in retrospect, you were right. 
President Ford. And Biden's situation is going to be different. If I were giving advice to Joe Biden, I would let Nancy Pelosi work with Schumer on what's going to happen with impeachment. If I were Biden, I'd stay out of it for 100 days. I would try to craft 100 days where impeachment doesn't infect the Biden administration, because I do believe he is inheriting such a difficult situation with 450,000 COVID deaths, number rising. I'm not convinced we have a logistical strategy for uh, getting shots in arms, two shots in arms across the country this spring. So I think he has 100 days to work with Mitch McConnell, try to work with Republicans on a COVID-19 economic stimulus relief bill and a kind of Marshall plan on getting the COVID vaccines out. After that 100 days, I would hope that we might be able to have a congressional commission report presented to President Biden, uh, which will have gaps in it, obviously, but might be able to point out how culpable is Trump for what happened on January 6th. And I think Biden at that point is going to have to decide whether the evidence is so egregious that he has to let Schumer move forward in the Senate, or if not, Biden may need to try to now get control over his own Democratic Party and say, let's cool our jets. What if we do a Senate censor? What if we um, write a, you know, I write a presidential report, you know, and we do a media outreach saying how guilty Trump was, but I'm not going to take him through the trial. So I'm, I'm indifferent on the trial now. I would want to see more evidence because I do think it would cripple Biden if he goes too soon in a Senate trial. And again, it might tear our country to smithereens. But without question, I would not touch that trial for 100 days if you can boot it down the line for a little bit. Let emotions settle and start looking at the empirical facts of what occurred. In a sense, it sounds like you're saying that moving too quickly to a trial would sort of drain power out of the Biden presidency. And especially if Trump, as is, seems to me very likely, were to be acquitted by the Senate, that actually may reinvigorate Trump's own power as a potential candidate four years later, or at least in the meantime, as the most powerful figure in the Republican Party. I mean, that's a sort of like serious self-harm story from the standpoint of the Democrats, if indeed they push forward too quickly. Am I reading you right? I agree with that completely. You said it perfectly. I think we have to be cautious of that. It's a big moment now that Biden's inheriting a major problem with COVID and the economy. And uh, he's got to keep focused and not let Donald Trump be jumping around in his head. The one thing we don't want to do is turn Trump into a martyr, you know, immediately make him a folk hero that he beat the rap yet again. And he'll probably does have a self-pardon. You know, I've been convinced by John Dean, a colleague of mine on CNN, who says that without a doubt, Trump will sign a personal pardon with his own private lawyer and put it in a, in a safe without announcing it to the public. You can assume, Noah, that when you see Trump leave for Florida, he has already signed and has notarized a self-pardon that he can pull out at any moment and try to actualize. When that gets pulled out, if it gets pulled out, then that's going to eventually become a Supreme Court case 
whether a president has the right to self-pardon or not. And it gets back to my original complaint of, I think we need to do some cleanup work on the 25th Amendment, on impeachments, on pardoning. It seems to me that the fact that we as a society don't know whether a president can self-pardon or not, uh, because nobody's ever done that before, and we've got to wait and see till it goes to the Supreme Court, tells me that we might need to try to figure out how to not have this happen again. I've been saying since the beginning of the Trump presidency, this is a stress test for our constitutional democracy. And now we can read the readout of the stress test and we see where our weaknesses are. And you've highlighted some important ones. Before I let you go, Doug, I, there's a question I've been dying to ask you. You are the very model of the sober, thoughtful historian, and you work on topics of great seriousness, presidential power, environmental protection. But you also have a side uh, which is features your friendship with the late gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. And I, I read that you're actually the literary executor of his estate, which is an amazing uh, responsibility. You've worked on the great documentary uh, with Johnny Depp about him. What's the backstory here? How did you get to know Hunter S. Thompson? And what was the cement in your friendship? My mom and dad were high school teachers, and we had a 24-foot coachman trailer. And so we traveled around the summer and we would do road trips. So I became a great lover of that kind of family vacation meets Jack Kerouac's on the road. Um, So when I was a young professor in 1992, I got a bus called the Magic Bus and college students would live on the bus and we'd go for a semester all over America, 35,000 miles. We'd even go up to Alaska, visiting presidential libraries, uh, homes of people like Martin Luther King or Helen Keller, Willa Cather, John Steinbeck, on and on. It was an all-purpose American studies road trip. And I would have the students read classic books. And when I had them read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, we visited Hunter S. Thompson in Colorado. We met Arthur Miller in Connecticut and Toni Morrison in New York and Ken Kesey in Oregon. So there are about 50 writers that were part of my program Dick Goodwin, who died recently, Doris Kern Goodwin's husband, was great friends with Hunter. And Dick Goodwin and Arthur Schlesinger both liked Hunter, knew him, and said, well, if you're doing that book, why don't you go visit Hunter in Colorado? So I pulled my bus in, and he actually was kind of a mensch, except Hunter would shoot all of the books. All the other authors would autograph them. Hunter would make them put it against a tree and shoot them, so suddenly their book had a big bullet hole in them. Well, some of the students thought that was idiotic, but there were about half of the students that thought, oh my God, it's so cool. Hunter shot my book, you know. And um, we became quite friendly. And he then asked me whether I'd help him edit down some of his books. And he trusted me enough to go in his basement. And I found a gold mine of great writing and brought out The Proud Highway, his first volume of collected letters. Then I edited Fear and Loathing in America. And then uh, a third one called The Mutineer I have queued up right now um, to eventually bring out, too. Uh, Hunter was a great satirist, uh, a great natural, almost athletic writer in his prime, and um, had a prophetic sense, a bit of a seer about some things. And so we became friends. And while he drank and drugged a lot, he was able to give a lot of good advice to me in my personal life, which is kind of odd. But he was unable to 
deal with his own personal life, but he was smart enough to be able to give good advice for somebody coming up the ladder. So while I did my work in history, I learned a lot about journalism from Hunter. That's completely fascinating. And I hugely appreciate that, that account. And just want to thank you very, very much for your amazing work and for your time and for sharing your perspective with us this week. I want to thank you for your amazing work. I read everything you do. You have a brilliant legal mind and you're an amazing asset to our country. So when I saw you wanted me to do this, I felt honored you wanted me to be on your podcast. So thank you. After talking to Professor Brinkley, I came away with two central ideas. The first is that Donald Trump's conduct as president, culminating in the attack on the Capitol, which he encouraged, and according to the article of impeachment, incited, is an extraordinary outlier in U.S. history. So much so that Professor Brinkley thinks we actually need to take a closer look at the mechanisms of constitutional power that we have to constrain a president who seems to be going off the rails. The second point from our conversation is more nuanced, and it's about how history is likely to view this moment. Looking at President Nixon's resignation and how the Republican Party and the Democratic Party ultimately worked together to create a new story, Professor Brinkley made the point that over time, we Americans tend to create common historical narratives that function to bring us closer together, even if they sometimes involve papering over some of the most shocking aspects of the past, including shocking aspects of presidential conduct. What that would mean for understanding the attack on Congress in historical terms would be that the attack would be somehow peripheralized, by which I mean it would be treated by history as the action of a small number of white supremacists and conspiracy theorists, rather than as a manifestation of a national political movement that to a certain degree came to take over the Republican Party and that denied the legitimacy of the results of the 2020 presidential election. In order for a narrative like that to emerge, a narrative that treated the capital attack as far from the mainstream of American politics, there would have to be a gradual process in which the Republican Party came to accept the 2020 transition of power as legitimate. For that to happen, the Republican Party would have to de-emphasize Donald Trump. And then, and only then, would a new story be able to be told about the attack on the Capitol. Perhaps not completely accurate, but designed to reestablish a national consensus. If that happens, and I emphasize that that's only an if, it would show the capacity of the U.S. political system to retell, reframe, and reshape historical narratives in order to generate outcomes of reconciliation. If that happened, then the historical process would have operated in a way really reminiscent of the aftermath of Richard Nixon's presidency, in which ultimately the pardon of Nixon and the public decision to, quote, move on, enabled the Republican Party to avoid any serious long-term costs for having elected a president who abused the power of the office and ultimately had to resign. These are all predictions made against the backdrop of historical experience. They're falsifiable. They might turn out not to be true. 
We will find out in the future, the near future, what's right and what's not. But as always, we can benefit from a deep encounter with historical background material to help us make an educated guess at what might happen next. Meanwhile, we have not forgotten the COVID-19 pandemic. We are hard at work to bring you episodes exploring the latest developments, including a conversation in the very near future about what new variants of the virus mean for the configuration of health and power in the world. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.